0: We'll The John
1: Frickin' Mearpod is stoked to partner with Garage Grown Gear for Season 6 of the podcast. Garage Grown Gear, or GGG for short, is your online store for all things ultralight backpacking. Dedicated to supporting the growth of small and cottage brands, they've got everything you need all in one place. From ultralight accessories to dehydrated meals to your big three, Garage Grown Gear has everything you need to lighten your load. Based out of St. Paul, Minnesota, GGG is known for its commitment to providing quality ultralight gear, stellar customer service, and free shipping and returns over $40. Do yourself a favor and get your gear at GGG. I go to nature to be soothed and healed and to have my senses put in order. John Burroughs
2: it's down. Down is harder in bare feet, at least for for me, Um, because you have to lower yourself. You can't, no jumping or hopping onto rocks, right? So it's steep, um, it's rocky, um, and it's exposed. So when you happen to show up there at, you know, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock in the morning, it gets very hot. Um, But, you know, the most amazing part of the the three-year experience, when I finally finished the the, uh, trail, so I made it down there, and I got a room in the Dow Villa and uh, I had trouble sleeping because my feet hurt so much. And um, but the next morning when I got up and I had some breakfast in Owen Valley and the sun was just coming over the uh, the, the, the mountains, the Indian Mountains, I realized it um, so quiet. And that was the quietest, stillest day of my life.
1: I'm Doc and this is Hiker Trash Radio. Hey, is this thing on? Hello? Hit it again. I think it's on now. Welcome to Hiker Trash Radio, where each week, Doc will drag some colorful characters out of the woods to talk trail and type 2 fun. If you're aspiring hiker trash, or if you're just looking to understand the hiker trash in your life, look no further. So lace up those boots, gnaw on some jerky, and settle
0: into your 20 mile pace as we fire up the podcast from somewhere deep in the backcountry. It's time to embrace the suck.
1: Welcome back to another week on the trail, dirtbags, hiker trash, and of course, good smelling day hikers. I'm Doc, and this is Hiker Trash Radio. Hey, if you like what we're doing here, take just a minute, help us out, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't like it, well, just go ahead and keep that to yourself. All right, let's get to this week's guest, an ultra runner and through hiker with a very interesting approach, Ken Posner. Welcome to Hiker Trash Radio, Ken. How's it going?
2: It's going great, Doc. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Hey, where are you calling
1: in from? What what part of the country are you in right now?
2: Well, right now I'm in uh, New York City.
1: Got some business meetings going on and that's just where I happen to be. Okay. Are you in a high rise on, on Manhattan somewhere or wh- wh- where are you? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually where I am. In a hotel room. Okay. Got it. How's the Wi-Fi?
2: The Wi-Fi is good. Uh, it's coming from my phone and we've got 53% batteries. So I think we're okay. Okay. If you have to plug it in, you know, feel free. I've got the power supply ready to go if we okay. if we drop uh, precipitously.
1: Very good. Now, being a thru-hiker, have you picked up a trail name along the way, Ken?
2: Yes, sir. Um, my trail name is Barefoot Ken, and that was given to me in August 2020 by um, another JMT thru-hiker by the name of uh, Chupacabra. I was there with his son Sherpa and a couple friends, uh, Jesus and and uh, Ricky. Uh, and this was on the top of Pincho Pass, and they just saw me without shoes, so that was <laughs> that was my name,
1: Barefoot Ken. And uh, I was gonna ask, you know, the origin of the story, but it kind of uh, the origin of the the trail name, but it kind of speaks for itself, doesn't it? It sort of does, yeah. <laughs> okay, hey, have you had a chance to listen to the podcast before, Barefoot Ken? Um, no. No, you're coming in completely cold. I love it. I am in this case cold and flying through the clouds <laughs> without <Okay>. radar. <laughs> All right. So you're not sure exactly what's in store for you. Uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. Um, I only ask because I want to make sure that you are aware of a sec segment we have towards the end of the episode called The Hiking Hack. And that's where you'll get a chance to share some trail wisdom with our listeners to make their next outdoor experience even better. So don't don't be surprised when we get there. Sounds
2: good. I'll have something to share anyhow. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if it'll be wisdom, but we'll
1: try. You'll have something. Okay. Very good.
0: Trailblazers toolkit.
1: That's right. It's time for the Trailblazers Toolkit, sponsored by the Ultralight Backpacking Gear Company Six Moon Designs. I love to talk about gear on the podcast and I'd love to hear about the most important item in my guest's adventure gear. So, Ken, if you were preparing for your next adventure, and I was the one providing you with all your gear. What is the one specific piece of gear you would insist on being packed? Give me all the specifics on that piece of gear and tell me why you got to have it out there. And this could be any type of item. It could be gear. It could be apparel. It could be a luxury item. So Ken, what what is that <laughs> item in your toolkit?
2: Uh, a luxury item. I love it. Hey, so there's some, you know, well, first of all, I'm a fan of Cody London. And if you've read his book, he's a survivalist. Um, and uh, he makes the point, you don't want to get colds, right? And uh, I have a healthy respect for mountain weather, which means I'm terrified of it. So, the first thing I would put in my pack is a tarp, right? And it just so happens I was trying to do a through run through the Catskills, New York's mountains. uh, And I got about three days in, four hours of sleep total. And I was in trouble and I needed to take a break and get some rest. And it was raining. And because I was a runner and thought I would go, you know, ultralight, I didn't have a tent. I didn't have a tarp. I didn't have anything. <laughs> so that was the end of that mission. That got scrubbed uh, halfway through. So I reached out to somebody I know i met once, Andrew Skirka, right? Yeah. The, the yeah. famous, famous, famous through-hiker and guide. And and, and uh, he said, well, here's a tarp you ought to get, you know, to carry with you. And it just so happens be the, the Deschutes, I think it's, I'm not sure how to say it, Deschutes tarp by Six Moon Design. That's yes. just a coincidence. But it's done a great job for me. I've had it for about 10 years. I was actually on the John Muir Trail um, last summer, and we had some monsoon conditions. And it rained all day, and I got to my campsite, and I put out my little tent, and I was curled up and feeling really comfy. And then I noticed this little puddle next to the tent slowly getting bigger. So uh-huh. that didn't end well. But besides that, you can't blame the tarp for that, right? <laughs> that was my bad uh, tent site. Uh, it's kept me dry through all conditions, so that's number one. You can't, fantastic. you know, you can't get cold. You know, it's it could be in the thirties, forties, fifties, and if you get wet, that's bad news.
1: That is bad news. That could be the end of the trip. Just like uh, that's right. I Said in your example. Well, fantastic.
0: It's the hawking pole.
1: Let's keep talking about gear and we're going to do it with a hiking poll, And that's poll spelled P-O-L-L, like a survey, not like the thing you hold in your hand. Right. Got it. I like to explain that to every guest because uh, I think I'm pretty clever of coming up with that. And every guest reaction is pretty much what the, your same reaction right there, just kind of a blank stare. So uh, that's okay. Uh, this is a seven question survey that's going to help me talk a little bit more about gear, but also give you a score on the sanity scale. From one to a hundred. Oh wow. With, with one being completely insane and one hundred right. being completely sane. Now, if you if you are if your if your trail name is barefoot Ken, that's an automatic 25 point deduction anyway. Cause I think it gives us some insight into your your level of sanity right off the bat.
2: Yeah, it could be. <laughs> okay.
1: So your your right. high, your highest possible score right now is 75. I'm
2: curious. I'm um, okay. So you can ask me well, I'm ready. Uh, I like to take tests when I know the answers. I'm I'm struggling a little bit right now, but let's see okay. what
1: happens. A little bit nervous. All right, seven questions. These are all hiking related, so I mean you're, you're you're probably pretty well prepared on this, and it's not rapid fire. I want you I want you to give me your answer, which which side of these issues you fall on, and then I want you to give it give it some uh, explanation. That'll help me with my my algorithm to give you a score. Okay, sounds good. All right. Okay, here we go. First question. Not too terribly controversial, I don't think. Uh, trekking poles or no trekking poles
2: um you know i don't like them i'd rather i'd rather use myself my my just my body for balance but the reality is when i'm on the john muir trail particularly without shoes and i get tired i i i have i brought i brought one in the last couple years so i don't know how you're gonna that trekking pole you said trekking poles coral i brought one because i also needed to pitch my uh shoots
1: by six men design Ben, i have i have some insight into how this interview is going to go tonight you know you're, you're <laughs> Sorry, already
2: man, gonna... <laughs> you,
1: you are not you're not taking the answers that are that are provided either the yes or the no you're going with a, a third option this is this is right. good all right all right question number two well actually let me let me uh let me follow up on that question why why don't you like the trekking pole
2: well, and this is personal. By the way, they're helpful getting uphill for sure, right? You can lever yourself uphill. But um, for me, anyhow, I tend to start over-relying on them. And balance is about your core engagement and stepping properly. And with the trekking poles, um, to me, they become crutches. And I'm not saying it's bad for other people to use them, but for me, they tend to become crutches and they compromise my my balance, I rely on them instead of relying on myself.
1: Got it. Got it. All right. Question number two, and I I know how this is going to go. The typical question for number two is what's on your feet, boots or trail
2: runners?
1: (laughs) But I I assume you're not going to pick either one of those options either.
2: Well, I, you know, it's, I've gone through a, a sort of weird transformation and, you know, when I'm at work, I wear shoes because I'm, I'm part of a team, right? I'm not trying to call attention to myself that's about it so running I, I don't wear shoes anymore hiking not unless there's snow um and I, I now with the you know the last six or eight nine months I've started just going around town without shoes uh to me it's just more fun um so I'm gonna answer nothing in most circumstances
1: right nothing is on those feet and yeah. how I mean I'm thinking of my own feet here and when I when I take them off for my, I don't take my feet off. When I take my shoes off, my trail runners right. off to cross a stream, um, and the 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 bottom is rocky. You know, I've got sensitive feet at the bottom of my feet. It, it's it's awkward. It's uncomfortable, and I can't wait to get the shoes back on. Were you were your feet ever like that? Have a have a sensitivity like that, or were you are you just naturally blessed with you know what? Whatever comes, it comes, and I, it doesn't bother me.
2: That that reminds me of crossing uh, evolution evolution creek wade when you get up into the valley and i got to the far side it was a nice sandy trail so i kept my shoes off for the next you know three or four miles and at first people would say where are your shoes and i was just like well i crossed you know the the stream and so i just kept them off and after about two miles people were starting to give me dubious looks on that so here here's the honest truth i i do not have feet of steel i'm i consider myself a tenderfoot I never wore, I never went barefoot when I was a kid. Never. I hated going to the beach and the pool. So, you know, I didn't wear shoes to bed, but that was about it. Um, so yeah, the rocks and particularly in the bottom of the stream bed, they can be slimy too. And that's, that's a treacherous, um, no, my feet hurt after going on rocks all day, like on the, on the mountain passes on the John Muir trail. But what I really crave is the intensity of the experience So when you go without shoes, yeah, the rocks hurt, but then you reach the sand or the mud or a mossy trail if it's not used that frequently. And it's that incredible contrast that uh, just makes it so much fun. Anyhow, and and by the way, I think more people should – the great way to do it is to do a hybrid approach, okay, So you're on the John your trail, you're in Yosemite or you're in Ansel Adams wilderness area and there's sandy trails. Why would you wear shoes there? It's super comfortable. It's like walking at the beach. And then, yeah, sure. When you get to the mountain passes, put on your shoes. But I'm very stubborn. So when I started to do something one way, I do not want to (laughs) stop. So that's anyhow, you've got four more questions, I think I want
1: to take you. Love it. Stubborn. And you crave the intensity of experience. I think that's another way of saying You like to embrace the suck.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, I wasn't a Navy SEAL. That's a SEAL term. I I was a Ranger once upon a time. But the, um, yeah, I mean, you know, like everybody else, I spend most of my life sitting on my butt in front of a computer, and that's that's great. And I'm, you know, reasonably productive. Um, I'm not against that stuff. But somewhere in my 40s, I was like, you know, I can't keep doing this. I, I, you know, life is flying by, and this is not. This is not everything that I want it to be. It's, it's such a narrow slice of mental and a tiny slice of physical capabilities. And it's not the full, I call it the full mind-body engagement, the full mind-body engagement. When you're out on the trail naked or <laughs> practically naked with just the minimum amount of stuff that you need, that's the intensity that I, I just love that. Not necessarily every minute of it at the time, but it's the experience.
1: So I'm gaining some great insight in here, uh, Ken. So it's the context, right? It's the context. It, it, you know, 30 seconds is 30 seconds, unless it's 30 seconds with someone, you know, pounding your, pounding your, your, or pulling your fingernails out, right? And then, then 30 <laughs> seconds feels like 30 years. It's taking, taken, you know, you're really experiencing every nanosecond of those 30 seconds. You you just made the, the John Muir Trail feel like, uh, I don't know, the the Pacific Crest Trail. I mean, you, you've lengthened the experience because you are present- in every moment,
2: right? But but here's the here's the point I make. You get out, you do the job of your trail. Did you really want those 211 miles to go by in a blur, or did you want to earn every step of them? Right. That's so. That's where I come from.
1: Got it. All right. Question number three. Uh, when it comes to your shelter system out there, I think we already heard the answer to this. but I'm going to ask anyway. Uh, tent guy, tarp, hammock, bivy, or hey, let's just cowboy camp.
2: I, I will do cowboy camping. It doesn't work so well in the rain. Um, but the um, just that tarp. And you know, I used to have a really thin plastic ground sheet. But for for the high Sierra, you don't really need it because the ground's so absorbent, right? So I ended up throwing that away. So it's real, literally just the um, the the tarp. Uh, that I do bring that one trekking pole for the center stake. And then I think I have five of six you know lightweight stakes left. So it's five stakes
1: and a rock generally. Got it. All right. Question number four when it comes to sleeping. Sleeping bag guy or quilt? Sleeping bag. Sleeping bag is not very minimalist. I thought, I'm surprised by that answer.
2: Yeah, I'm uh I'm more of somebody who deals well with the heat and gets cold easily. So I I when I was in the army, we had we they're called poncho liners, right? They're nylon quilts. I used to wrap myself up in that and wake up and brush off the frost and just get back on the move. But I haven't I haven't really messed with the modern hiking quilts. So I have my Western States uh, or Western what was it called the um, the Western brand uh, uh, lightweight sleeping bag. Now it's only lightweight, so it's rated to thirty two. Somebody explained that's a survival rating. That was after I'd already been sleeping out in the winter with it. <laughs> um, so it it is it has served me well. Got it. And I didn't die in the twenties, as it turned out. Okay, it
1: was, it was comfortable. Here we are talking. You made it through. Yeah. All right. When it comes to food, uh, stove, cold soak or stoveless?
2: No, I did bring a, a, a stove. The uh, what is it? The MSR Pocket Rocket, I think it's right. called. So I, I I do use that. I like the tea in the morning, and and again, it's a it's about that's a little bit of comfort that I will indulge in. Uh, also, I. I've done, I've done, you know, running trips where I would um, eat dehydrated meals with just cold water, but that pocket rocket's is not very much weight. So I do indulge a little bit
1: there. Yeah. All right. Question number six, is life better above or below the tree line?
2: Well, you know, that's an interesting question. Um, I've never, I've never thought of things that way. Um, well, I'll just say above. Just because it's coming from New York where we don't have a lot of Alpine terrain per se. We have some in the Adirondacks. Uh, It's just different. So it's fun. It's a treat. It's a special experience. That's
1: the right answer, by the way. Nice job. Okay, good. (laughs) I got one right. (laughs) (laughs) And question number seven, what's more important, pack weight or luxury items?
2: Oh, hey, look, um, you know, I'm not... What's, I don't understand what's the point of luxury, period, ever. That's not to say I'm a totally Spartan uh, in my life, but I, I'm not going to come out to the John Muir Trail in search of consumer luxuries. It's like, you know, I'm staying in a hotel right now in New York. It's an expensive hotel. It doesn't matter. You know what they do in certain countries? I don't want to pick on any countries, but if you run afoul of the king, they put you into a, like a Four Seasons or a Ritz-Carlton, that's your jail. So tell me how long you're going to enjoy those luxury items in the start of your life sentence in a, a luxury hotel. Not, you know, not very long.
1: Does it come you know, with the luxury? Does, is not is not a word come, I believe in. Does it come with room service?
2: I I I think it must. Otherwise, you you wouldn't last very long. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they have to march down to the uh, restaurant. Uh, <laughs> And order their shrimp salad with avocado slices. No, no luxury items on. Well, you know, to be fair though, the 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 the, the stove is a luxury item. All
1: right, we are officially finished finished with the with the hiking pole. But I do have. And then the the pack weight.
2: Pack weight's very important. Very important. So I got my pack down to, I don't know, plus or minus twenty pounds, um, depending on how much food was in there. Right. Right. Um, and never sacrificing warm clothing because that's not a luxury; that's life saving, right? Um, yeah, yeah, no luxury items on the trail. Why? Why? Being able to go out on the trail is the luxury. Sort of.
1: Nice. All right. Hey, uh, Ken, stand by. I've got to do some math here, which means I got to take my shoes off uh, to, to make it, make sure I can count high enough here. Um, I've got to I've got to carry the two. We're going to divide that by root five, multiply by pi. And I'm going to make a, a slight adjustment for the thickness of the calluses on the bottom of Ken's feet. And I come up with a score of 31.
2: Well, that sounds high, but all right, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> I'll take it.
1: 31, remember, the higher the score... Right. Or saying you are.
2: I mean, that means too. I think that's
1: too high. That's too high. You, you figured you're in the 20s maybe or, or less?
2: There are other there's other things we could talk about that you would deduct from my score. But whatever. You can come back and, and adjust it if I say anything during the rest of the podcast that gives you reason to, to do so.
1: I'm surprised that you have not listened to the podcast. That's typically my line is that, hey, as we go along through the interview, that score could change. OK,
2: well, we'll maybe it'll go on.
1: I I doubt it Ken. I doubt it. Don't don't get your hopes up. All right. Hey, before we get too far down the trail, let's back up a little bit. Let's hear about your background, where you grew up, what kinds of sports and hobbies uh you played as a kid, and how did you get involved in the thru-hiking cult? And I definitely want to hear about your experience as being a former Airborne Ranger.
2: Well, I'll give you the very abbreviated version doc um, you know growing up i was not great in sports i was the last kid to be picked uh you know in school i was just sort of uncoordinated and um uh, uh, you know i started some running just to try and get in better shape the the army experience was formative because we would you know go out and hike or run and, and do stuff and after a day of moving you know i felt that that sort of tiredness that is that signal you've done something that day which you get a different kind of tiredness from sitting in front of the computer, but that full mind body engagement is something I sort of discovered in the army. Um, but then after that, I worked, um, you know, in corporate American wall street and things like that. And, um, it was really my forties that I got back into running because I started seeing people, you know, I was advancing in my career because people were getting sick. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to need to get back in shape or that's going to be me too. Um, So I started uh, through, I started ultra running in my forties and um, you know, in my fifties, interestingly, my hunger for nature just accelerated. And so I ended up taking a year off and doing something that's called the grid. So that's hiking the high peaks in the New York's Catskills in each month of the year. Um, And I think the idea of through hiking the the John Muir trail came to me Because I was out in Yosemite and discovered the trail, and then I was flying on a business trip from San Francisco to Los Angeles, and I looked out the window, and it was sunset, and the alpenglow was starting to shine across the range of light. And I was like, you know what? I've got to go out and see what John Muir saw about this range. I've got to get there and see it and feel it. And that's where I made – the decision to go do that i had i had i had through running trail in new york but i had not done any through hiking prior to
1: that got it ken i've got a lot of a lot of things to unpack right there got, i have some follow-up questions for you go for it doc okay all right so you're uncoordinated as as a kid didn't play a lot of didn't play a lot of sports yet you decided to join the army what what was the what was the motivation for joining the army
2: well, you know, I, I'm going to date myself, but there was a Pepsi commercial way back then. I was I was going between the Army and the Air Force, and the, the Pepsi commercial showed a pilot you know, flying upside down so he could drink from his can of Pepsi. And I thought about that, but I thought it would be too technical. And there was, this is a crazy reason to join the Army. I wanted to be outdoors. And I felt, you know, an, infantry, uh, an infantryman's job being out in the terrain, that was somehow appealing to me plus I wanted to do something for my, for my country. And I wanted to, you know, sort of prove myself. I was looking for something that was challenging. Um, so that strange combination of factors is what, it, and I think in college too, I was sensing that this is a great education, but I wasn't sure where it was going. So I actually joined the reserves first and then um, they said, well, you're in college. Why don't you join an ROTC? So I did that. And, Became an officer and served for four years, and uh, it was a tremendous learning experience. Absolutely, you know, just very committed, disciplined, tough people. Uh, it was a great edu- second edu- education for me.
1: So, Pepsi and patriotism got you in there, and uh, yeah, did ROTC, uh, became an officer. you were in the, in the service for four years. That's right. And what was the motivation to become an airborne ranger? Because now your feet are no longer on the ground if you're an Airborne Ranger, right?
2: Uh, well, for a period of time, they're not. Yeah, the I felt if I was going to do something, I needed to be the best that I could be. Uh, and it was in part coming from a legacy of being that kid who was never any good in any of the sports or games. I wanted to try and be good at something. That was very important to me. And it still is today. I get frustrated. When I don't do as well as I'd like to do at something.
1: Now, Ken, when I talk to people on the podcast here, I talk talk to a lot of through hikers, and I, I have come to realize, even with myself, that that there is a bit of obsessive personality that really plays well to through hikers or to people who who uh do podcasts, for example. I'm I'm a little obsessive with a podcast, uh, you know, putting out two new episodes every single week, uh, as much awesome. to the to the the chagrin of my wife. But um it, it, is there a bit of an obsessive? Uh, component to your personality
2: well you know there's a bit of something uh (laughs) for sure the um you know that's that's an interesting question i have i feel like i have a lot of energy and it can it has to go somewhere right and there's only so much of it that can go into the computer or reading or being on twitter or whatever I need to get out there and have that full mind body engagement. Um, so that might maybe be obsessiveness. I think I tend to think it's the energy that everybody has. And, you know, um, some people, uh, it feels like some people get sort of blocked in their ability to really direct that energy to do the things that they want to do. I have great respect for people who, you know, are athletes or through hikers or runners, but also for people, some people take that energy and start businesses. Or make scientific discoveries, or they're artists. So I think there are many ways uh, to to use that energy. But that's what we that's what we do. We have energy. We got to do something with it.
1: Right.
2: And you mentioned I, I have a theory too in the in the modern life that because we surround ourselves with so many luxuries and so much comfort, and because comfort is prized, that energy doesn't always get deployed. And so I call it the terminals getting corroded, the battery terminals getting corroded. And I think sometimes anxiety or depression or things like that can be symptoms of we have this energy to live. You know, our ancestors lived outdoors in the forest, the mountains, basically naked, uh, physically demanding life. And you can take us out of that environment, but we still have that energy.
1: That's right. And that, that goes, that speaks directly to the therapeutic nature of being outdoors and being on the trail. I mean, there's a lot of people who are stuck as you, as you kind of uh, put it there, who get back out into nature and they work on themselves and lo and behold, they, they come out a changed person at the end.
2: I, I agree. I agree. And and for myself, you know, it's been a huge theme of my life and it, uh, strangely as I've gotten older, it's become a more powerful uh, sense in that I wanted to spend more time outdoors where I
1: could. All right. Now you said you, you worked in corporate America for a while. And then you decided to take a year off and and grid uh, the mountains in, is it New York? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And so did you just walk away from that job? Did you take a leave of absence? What did they say when you said, hey, (laughs) I I need to get out of here and get outside?
2: Well, I had been, I was, at this point, I had been working for 30 years. So uh, it was time for a break uh, for anybody who would want to and be able to. Um, But the company I was working at was sold. So it was the perfect opportunity. I mean, I could have started a job hunt and immediately got into a new job, but instead I was like, no, no, it's time I need to get out. Also, at this point, having been a runner, I've been doing a little bit too much running and was getting to that point where trying too hard leads to injuries. So hiking in the mountains with something like the grid where you don't have to be fast, you don't have necessarily a deadline, that was a great um that was a great project for me. And you asked if I was obsessive. Uh, I sort of equivocated, but the grid totally took over my mind. Totally took over my mind. And but part of the fun of it for me, if you call it fun, I'm i am still at 31, right? But I feel like I might be sinking here, is that I wanted to go out. And by the way, for your listeners, the grid means you do the high peaks in your region, which in the Catskills is 35 or was 35. You got to do it in each month of the year. And you can take your whole life to compile that roster of peaks, but I wanted to get it done as fast as possible because there was that intensity of getting out there, whether you wanted to or not, whether it was your favorite season of the year or not your favorite, whether you were feeling good or bad, because it's all about learning. It's all about the intensity of the experience and learning about yourself and learning about the mountains.
1: Yeah, Kim, when I asked that question, I already knew the answer to the question about uh, the obsessive personality, but I want to see what right. you're going to say. All right. Yes. So I mean, no. I'm not obsessive. you, You did equivocate a little bit, but you know, I I know the answer. It's okay. That's all right. So what what are you doing these days to pay the bills to finance your adventures out there?
2: Well, I'm still a corporate worker, and and you know, I'm 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 trying to be a writer, but if I had tried to support myself as a writer, I would have starved a long time ago. So, you know, that's, that's hard. Um, but no, I work, so I work and, you know, I get a limited number. I, by the way, to do the John Muir trail? I used up my whole year's of vacation in one shot <laughs> pretty much. So, um, now I'm not, I don't have a through hike plan for this year. So I'm, uh, but actually it's almost June. I haven't used any vacation day, so I'm about to, um, uh, but I, but also the nice thing about running is you can get out in the morning or in the evening right. and it doesn't have to be that multi-week expedition all the time. Obviously you can get that intensity in shorter, shorter doses.
1: Yeah. If you have a chance, Ken, I want you to listen to one of the episodes uh, in the, in the podcast called uh, Gabe and Kevin fast pack, the JMT. I think it's somewhere in season two <clears throat> and uh, Gabe, Gabe, they're both ultra runners, right? Like you, ultra runners. And they had a week's worth of vacation and thought that Uh they'd uh, take some time off and, and go run the JMT. You know, how, how, how long could it take? And they, they got to the JMT and quickly realized that they, they, there was no way they could run, but they only had the week. And so they, they, if you can't do the speed, then you've got to extend the hours. And so they were, yeah. they, they fast packed it. And many days are waking up at uh, 3 a.m., 4 a.m. And, and hiking until, you know, 11 o'clock or midnight.
2: Oh, yeah, no, I've done I, I've done that. That's something I learned in, in the military. You learn, you know, in ranger school, for example, what's more important to you, sleep or food <laughs> or how, you know. And uh, but by, by the way, you know, to do the jam your trail barefoot, which is very slow. I had to get up at midnight, certainly at midnight, to make it from Guitar Lake to the top of Whitney, and then also uh, last year I did it. I got up at midnight to, um, I think, make it about Pinchot Pass was um, no, no, uh, Glen was a big problem for me the year before, so that was another midnight. Uh. I remember I, the first time I was out there, the alarm went off. I was like zero, zero, zero. My watch is broken. And I was like, oh, no, that's midnight. But then the (laughs) weird thing is I started going up and I was like, okay, I'm going to press the GPS button to track my pace. And it didn't, it was broken. The GPS function was gone. There's something wrong with the battery. And um, so I was actually right. The watch had malfunction, but it did
1: wake me up at midnight, mercifully. Otherwise I would not have made it to the top on time. Thank goodness. Now what, what, uh, what kind of writer, what do you, what are you writing?
2: Well, I'd like to, uh, as many of us would like to do, we like to share the experiences when they're meaningful. So I've written one book about through running the long path, which is a 350 mile trail in, in New York. And so I've, um, I'm working on a book about the John Muir Trail. And what's exciting to me, there's my own experience, which is sort of the plot, but there's so much interesting history about the people who have been in the high Sierra before, whether it's the John Muir or an Ansel Adams, or a Sarah Winnemucca, right? Or, you know, reading about I read the memoirs of a mono-Indian named Galen Lee. Just fascinating stories Or Charles Young, who was the, not the first, the third Black man to graduate from West Point in like 1888. Can you imagine that? So he was out in the High Sierra as part of the Buffalo Soldiers, and he was actually, his unit, um, a lot of work on trails, uh, as well as keeping out poachers and uh, sheep herders and other desperados. So they're tremendous stories. And what I'm interested in is um, what I'm interested in is um, the values. What can we learn from? Sorry about that, Don. That's, what 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 can we learn from people who struggled through the Sierra in you know, years going by about values that matter today in our high tech world, like determination, or personal integrity, or connection with nature, um, or acceptance. That, that's what I'm interested in. So we'll see if I can get this book out the door. But that would be those would be some of the themes in the book if I am.
1: What percentage done is the book? Where are you in the process?
2: Well, it's it's. Uh, I have a, a draft of it, so I, I'm very privileged to, to have been introduced to an agent. So she is marketing it, and we will uh, see what happens.
1: You have a title or a working title? Yeah, it's called uh, Barefoot on the Jungle Trail. That makes sense. That, that's uh, that's good. All right, uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to hear from the sponsors. We're going to pay some bills, and when we get back, we're going to get into some of the nitty gritty. Of uh, those, those two barefoot through hikes of the Long Path and the JMT. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. From the backcountry to the backyard, we believe everyone deserves the highest level of protection. Since 1984, Sawyer Products offers the best, most technologically advanced solutions for protection against sun, bugs, and water using time-released liposome technology, topical insect repellents, and new standards in water filtration. And with every Sawyer product you buy, you are helping to provide clean water through 140 charities in 80 countries with their long-lasting water filters. Every Sawyer product you buy is an investment in our common humanity. Choose Sawyer and keep the adventure going, knowing that their products have been tested and chosen by those who count on serious protection on the trail all day long. this episode is sponsored by jolly gear are you tired of compromising between the ventilation of a button down and the full protection of a sun hoodie with the triple crown button down you can have the best of both plus their fun standout patterns will have you the talk of the trail visit them at jollygear.com through hiker owned jolly gear where fun meets functional Six Moon Designs has been innovating ultralight backpacking gear for the past 20 years. With a wide range of products ranging from ultralight shelters to backpacks and accessories like their extensive line of trekking umbrellas, Six Moon Designs is sure to have a great piece of gear for your needs. With the company philosophy being that gear should aid one's experience, not define it, Six Moon Designs thinks the more time people spend outside the natural world, the better off this world will be. And remember, go wild, live young. And welcome back. We're talking to Barefoot Ken, Kenneth Posner, uh, about his, uh, we heard about his background, his upbringing, his time in in the Army Rangers, and now we're going to talk a little bit about uh, his adventures. So first, let's talk about this concept called minimalism. You know, certainly it sounds like you're a minimalist out there on the trail, no luxury items, Period. You no, know, the luxury is the trail. I like that whole concept. That might that might be the title for this episode. The luxury is the trail, <laughs> Kenneth Posner. Um, but let's talk about minimalism. And, and do you apply those same concepts to your your everyday life?
2: One thousand percent. Actually, I shouldn't say one thousand percent is a minimalist. That's an exaggeration. Um, yeah, here's the. that I went to when I was doing the grid, that's when I felt the attraction of the concept of minimalism. And I I like to say that the being out in the mountains sort of taught me the spirit of minimalism. But um, you you know, uh, Earl Schaefer, the first uh, fellow to through hike the uh, Appalachian Trail, in his memoirs, he talks about his minimalist approach. He said, because he was talking about pack weight, right? Carry as little as possible, but choose that little with care. Now, that's what you have to do as a through hiker but that's a great ma- mantra for all of life because the forces of distraction and clutter in the modern world will just tear you apart unless you take control and mindfully say, yeah, I'll use this bit of technology, but not this, because the costs outweigh the benefits. So, um, yeah, no, simpl- and Thoreau said the same thing. He said, simplify simplify. If, um, eat, if it, it eat but one meal a day, if need be, instead of three. So that actually inspired me on one of my early, um, you know, grid hikes, uh, back in, oh, I want to say 2015. I said, you know what, that's a great idea. I'll bring one meal with me, one meal every 24 hours. And, and, you know, that was also building off of, of something I did. I'd run a 50 a mile race, no food, No water. Just to just to see, you know, could I make it that far without calories or fluid? Because, you know, people used to do that. Right. But in today's world, it's all about comfort. It's all about taking away these stresses. And it's like, no, I need these stresses. I need to know what I'm capable of doing so that I can judge what I need versus what I merely think I need. And by the way, in the modern world, as we all know, right, an excess of calories is has created a
1: pandemic of bad health, right? All right. Hey, some follow up questions on that as well. This is fascinating. So number one, are you a, a proponent of intermittent fasting?
2: Oh, absolutely. 1000%. I do 150 to 200 hours of intermittent fasting per month and minimum blocks of 16 hours with at least one 30 hour fast per month. Absolutely. Because, and I started to discover this as an ultra runner. If you're dependent on sugar, your body's not going to burn bad. And that is the start of many of the metabolic problems that the modern world seems to be facing today. And our ancestors, it's not like they were starving all the time, but they did not have refrigerators. <laughs> so if they wanted to eat, they had to go look for it. I read, um, you know, I read, I read the accounts of uh, white explorers who would encounter you know Native Americans, and they went. You know, there's a great story from William Lewis Manley's account. He was the first, your uh, white person who crossed Death Valley, and a friend of his fell in with a band of Shoshone, and they went hunting, and they didn't find any game for a couple of days, and the whites were starving. They were in tears, and the Indians were sitting around singing songs. They were totally used to going two or three days without food, but in today's world, that's like a violation of your human rights not to have a sugary snack every 30 minutes, right? So I think you've got to fight back against the forces of comfort or you run the risk of just being, uh, of losing capabilities that you don't even know you had.
1: And you left us kind of in the lurch when you talked about your 50 mile ultra with no food or no water. You didn't tell us how that finished up. How did that go for you? Well, the problem was I was injured. So I knew I wasn't going to be going fast anyhow, um, but
2: I'll tell you, it was cool. It was in May in New York. So it wasn't, I wouldn't do that in Death Valley, uh, but, <laughs> by the way. Um, but the, um, you know, around mile 40, I was starting to get thirsty. And I passed a little stream and I was like, oh, what a lovely stream. <laughs> the water rushing over the Black Rocks. And then it opened up and it started raining. <laughs> and I completely forgot about it. You can't be thirsty when you're getting rained on and it's 40 degrees out. Um, although, you know, you see people, you know, in races. Uh, I ran in Boston once, and it was forty degrees and raining. And I see all these people stopping to drink because they're bundled up and they're sweating. <laughs> I was just wearing a, a you know, a, a sleeveless t-shirt. So all my best marathons,
1: no food, no water. Right. Wow, that is impressive.
2: That uh, that's that's. It's actually not. It's just old school. People didn't use to the the, the drink sports drinks and things like that, and and that that may though that a sports drink may help you go a little bit faster. I don't know. And if elite athletes tell you to drink a little bit of a sugary water, I'm not elite, so I wouldn't know. But I'm much more focused on maintaining my metabolic health rather than a few seconds of a faster
1: pace. All right. Now you said a little bit earlier that you have to, you know, you you decide to use this piece of technology, but maybe not this because of. uh, cost. Can you give us some examples of things that you've decided to do without in your life in the spirit well, of minimalism and and simplifying your life?
2: Well, where I live in New York, I never use air conditioning. So no need for that. Um I even stayed once in Death Valley and there weren't any rooms in the hotel so they put they put you out in a canvas tent, no air conditioning, but at night it was actually okay. Uh maybe not during the day. Um So um, what I'm trying to think what would be relevant. I mean, I don't use the heat much. So during the winter, the thermostat will be anywhere from, you know, 55 to 58 or 59. I get cold, but um, I I really feel that I need to push myself to be able to warm myself, right? Thermogenesis. Um, And you take away, if you're always in a comfortable uh, climate, then you lose the ability to keep yourself warm. So I wear a sweater or a jacket, and bundle up under a blanket. So those are a couple of examples. I try to be very disciplined on my diet. So I'm not into gourmet foods, um, but you know whether it's fresh vegetables or grass fed meat, um, you know simple, uh, simple diet which is has a minimal glycemic load because I think that's the and you know trying to keep out some of the toxic ingredients that 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 you know may contribute to problems.
1: So those are some examples. All right. You have a TV in your house? No. No TV?
2: No, I don't, I'm not a big fan of mainstream media. Um,
1: or, and I'm, I'm not much of a sports person. So I, I, sports is great, but I just don't have the, the right genes for that. And, and that is why you're able to quote so many authors. I have a feeling I know what you do in your spare time. I do a little bit of reading. A little bit, yeah?
2: <laughs> a little bit.
1: <laughs> nice. It's great to be well read. Now, we talked a little bit about ultra running, but let, I mean, let's give our listeners an idea of of how accomplished you are as an ultra runner. I mean, you haven't just run a few marathons for ultra marathons; you, you've you've run quite a few.
2: Yeah, I just did my hundred and sixth. So, um, they, I'm I call myself an ultra marathoner, but as I get older, it's more marathons. <laughs> but I've still done. I think I did twenty or. 2500 uh, mile plus races. So I've run Badwater a couple of times. And I ran the Badwater double. I did the um, long path through run, and I've done a couple of other uh, runs that were notable and fun, different, interesting. Um, yeah, ultra running, it, ultra running is, is a great, great sport. There's a woman right now um, who's setting an ultra marathon uh, streak yeah. record. Yeah. Yes, Candice. That's just amazing. She's almost to 200 days. That's so cool.
1: That is amazing. I
2: I got to a certain age and uh, I had done the Badwater double and I was determined to go out and do the Badwater quad. And that's when my left, uh, one of the tendons by the ankle said, you know, you're not going to do that. I said, yeah, I am. My ankle won. That took me out for a year or two. um, But now I'm, I'm back and still having fun with running. I love running.
1: So for those who may not be familiar, tell us what the Badwater is, and of course, then what is the Badwater Double or the Badwater Quad?
2: Well, the Badwater is an ultramarathon that starts in Death Valley at the Badwater Basin, which is, I think, 289 feet plus or minus below sea level, and it goes 135 miles up and over Town Pass into Panamint Valley, and then into the Valley of Lake Owens, and then up to the uh, the portal, which is the trailhead for Whitney at about 8,000 feet, so the The double is the traditional route. See, the race has to stop at the portal because you can't, you know, there's such, you cannot get 100 or 200 runners up to the top of Mount Whitney. But the traditional route, you go all the way up to the Summit of Whitney. And to do the double, you go all the way back to the Badwater Basin. So that was the best run of my my life. Um, Marshall Ulrich set the record for the double among, you know, 10,000 other (laughs) amazing feats. And I managed to break his record by just a couple hours. So I have possibly earned the right to be a small footnote in his legendary career, maybe. Um but that that uh that that and that was a few years back. Uh I was a, little, I was a young man of uh 51 at the time. So uh that was a that was that was tough. That was tough. Uh, but it went well. I had a great crew. Uh, Would you say that was your,
1: your biggest accomplishment as an ultra runner? Oh yeah. Yeah. Bad water double? Yeah, for sure. So is that 270 miles then? 292 miles. 292. Yeah. Because that, that went all the way to the top of Whitney. Yep. Got it. Got it. And, and how
2: I, long- I did it in, in just around four days. So, uh, and uh, I started to fall, but I fell behind and, and, uh, but I managed to catch up by skipping sleep breaks. So I ended up doing it with a total of about four hours of sleep. Uh, and it was hard towards the end. I had great pacers, uh, uh, including a woman named, uh, Deanna Colbreth and uh, we were coming into Death Valley, so it was the home stretch, and it was night, so it was cooling off. The only issue was headwinds, and I don't know how fast. I didn't have a wind meter with me, but you know, when your shirt, I can't, your shirt starts whipping back and forth. So I think that's thirty to fifty mile an hour headwinds. I don't know, you know, I didn't have a a wind vane with me, so I, I was having trouble just main, maintaining a four mile an hour power hike, and Deanna said, let's try running. And I was like, I couldn't talk at that point. I could hear, but I couldn't talk. And I was like, I don't know if that's gonna work, but but she started running, and so I started running, or trotting, and it was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life, except I realized I wasn't out of breath. (laughs) My heart wasn't racing, it was just, it's hard up here. Yeah. and I just realized if I would just make the effort I would keep moving and so thanks to Deanna and the rest of the crew um and there was lightning overhead it was like the spirits of Death Valley they were like no you're not going to do this dude just give up and uh eventually the lightning went away it was just a bluff
1: now i, I also run I'm not an ultra runner I, I've done mm-hmm. four I've done four, four marathons so'm I'm, I'm a bit behind cool. you but, um, I hate running into a headwind of like 10 miles an hour. That, that just, yeah. I'm, I'm frustrated by that. But also, you know, when I, when I feel like, okay, I can't do anymore. I I do the same thing. I think to myself, okay, am I out of breath is, is, is no, it's not that I'm out of breath or that my, you know, I'm in pain or anything. It's just that, you know, mentally, mentally I'm done. And I think if you can break through that barrier, you you can go a long way, obviously. Um, when you were out there for four days on only four hours of sleep, any hallucinations?
2: Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 And, and, and I mean, I first discovered hallucinations in ranger school in army training. Right. And so what I've learned is two, two, two keys to dealing with hallucinations. One, trying to maintain a overall positive mindset. Not a cheerleading, kind of goofy mindset, but just a determined, focused, positive mindset. And then second, don't stare at the hallucinations. You just if, if you so, I, I you just sort of let them do their things around the corner of your vision and you just try to stay focused ahead, don't look at them because going down past the Alabama hills, the Alabama hills, if you're tired, will start to turn into really creepy looking faces
1: <laughs> and everything else uh, that you can imagine. So, just don't look at them. That's a good life lesson right there. That's almost, that could be the hiking hack. You know, don't stare at the hallucinations, but you now you've already used that. So you can't, you can't. find I I
2: did a a hundred mile race once that started Friday evening. So you get by Saturday evening, you're into night two, night two is hard for me anyhow. And so I'd look at a bush and it would turn into a house and then I'd stare at it. And it was like Microsoft PowerPoint with like transition effects. It would, Uh, turn into a puff of smoke and then turn
1: into something else that's what i learned just don't look at them and try to stay focused on where you're going now if you are good at dealing with hallucinations and sleep deprivation and you're an ultra endurance athlete i mean i think you are well suited for the barclay marathons
2: you know i thought about the barclay marathons but i um I've done a lot of land navigation you know in the army uh, so I certainly could have given them a shot I don't know how far I would have made it uh, so maybe my next life i'll I'll try the barclay marathons i, I actually organize a race in uh in the rungunk Mountains in New York we make a, it's not a Barclays marathon but we don't mark the course we we just give people an app so they can check where they are and it's hilarious because people <laughs> we have to have search and rescue teams on standby to go looking for people who disappear off the course. And we've never lost anybody for good. (laughs) So it's not a Barclays, it's not an orienteering course, but, uh, but it's it's fun. By the way, in the Catskills, uh, about a third of the peaks don't have official trails. So you really do have to do um, uh, real navigation. And one of the things that we do with, with friends and sometimes by myself, is called natural navigation. So just no map, you can study the map beforehand because you got to know where you're trying to get to, but no compass, no GPS, no maps, that all goes in your pack. And uh, for when you realize you're totally lost then you pull them out, <laughs> like, oops, I went the wrong way. That's a great, this one, talk about the, you know, again, this technology in this uh, problem or the challenges, it's like Google maps, right? Once you get used to following a compass or your, your phone app, you stop paying attention to what's around you. So the natural navigation, will teach you to read the lay of the land, to look at the sun, the other clues, to pay attention. It's the mindfulness, which technology tends to make unnecessary, and then what's unnecessary, you don't do.
1: All right. Now, was the, was the double bad water, was that your longest run? Your well, longest? the long path was 350 miles, so that was a little bit longer. I'm sorry, which one was that?
2: The Long Path. The Long Path is a uh, hiking trail in New York that's 350 miles. It reaches from New York City to just about the outskirts of Albany. Right. But that that wasn't a race, was it? That was the fastest known time. So the fastest known time was 12 days. I went out and did it at nine. Um, by the way, a fellow named Jeffrey Adams has subsequently broken my record. He's done it in seven. But here's what's really exciting. Uh, a young lady named Kim Lewinsky, is going to go out this summer and try to set the female fastest known time, and she's a very talented runner and a great person. So I'm really excited to cheer her on when she goes out to do that.
1: Now, now tell us a little bit about, about the Long Path because I, I had not heard of the Long Path prior to our our exchanges of information leading up. Oh, to- the yeah. Long
2: Path is a great trail, and you know it's it's people confuse it with the Long Trail in Vermont. Right. The right. Long Path is named for a stanza in Walt Whitman's poetry, The Song of the Open Road, the long brown path leading wherever I choose. It used to be called the long brown path and they blazed it brown and discovered that brown is a really bad color for blazes. So they just shortened it to the long path and now the blazes are aqua. But it's a great trail. It takes you through the best areas of the Hudson Valley. It takes you through Harriman. It takes you through the Schwangungs, the Catskills. Uh, and it takes you it always takes you to the, to the top of the nearest mountain. So that was a big adventure for me. That was uh, nine days, and I ran out of food and I got injured, but I was not going to stop. And I made it to the end. Um, it was a great experience. It was just so affirming to do something hard and do it better. And, um, you know, it was just a defining experience for me.
1: Now, did you do that with no shoes?
2: No, no, that was
1: back in my running days. The, the thing about yeah. barefoot is on rocky trails in the Northeast, it's very slow. That's what I was going to say. I was going to point out that how could you do an FKT uh, barefoot when you're oh, already having you know, of the pace? I
2: was in Col- Colorado Springs, and I ran a trail race there barefoot. It was seven miles at 7,000 feet. And I'm not a spring chicken anymore, but I finished in the middle of the pack. I was sort of pleased with that. Coming from zero feet <laughs> above right. sea level, no time to acclimate, no shoes, and they have but they have softer trails out in Colorado. At least there, they do.
1: Yeah. Now the Long Path is it a is it a north south path? Is it an east west or north south? North south.
2: North south, and it starts right in in um, the northern end of Manhattan. You can literally get off the subway, and walk across the George Washington Bridge, and then you're on the Palisades. Stunning views across the Hudson River and then you wind into the southern reaches of um harriman state park through a graveyard which is sort of creepy especially if you get there at like midnight this <laughs> <laughs> is and and uh and so it goes on from there um it's a tremendous experience it's it's so quintessentially new york the john muir trail is incredibly remote right yeah but the long path is more reasonable there are a lot of road crossings there are a little bit of road walks where they just had to use the roads to connect um from one part to another, but over the years, the volunteers who created the long path have been, you know, acquiring land and moving the trail off the road. So it's now most almost entirely on the trails. It's a great, by the way, for any of your listeners who've done the job Muir your trail, done other trails come out to New York. It's a great experience because you start in the city and you gradually move North into wilder and more remote territory. And it's the beautiful, the beauty of the Hudson Valley. Um, so it's a great experience. I recommend it very strongly to anybody who wants who's looking for something different to do.
1: Now, Ken, if if someone comes to your to your door, knocks on the door, and says the key phrase uh, "John Freaky Pod, will you put them up uh, as they prepare for the the Long Trail, the long sure. path, the long path? I mean, they have to realize there's no TV in the house, but you know. <laughs>
2: um, delighted to absolutely. <laughs>
1: Now, how how does a New York boy hear about the John Muir Trail and say and get it into his mind that, hey, this is something I want to do? How did did that all come about?
2: Well, I've been reading uh, John Muir's works for a while. And and by the way, there's a tradition among many traditions. Emerson. Thoreau. John Burroughs. um, Walt Whitman. John Muir. They, they all sort of came, they, they, I guess you could call this all the transcendentalist movement, plus or minus, minus. and they came from this idea of um, the European Romantic Movement, but, but they represent modern people in a rapidly industrializing late 19th century America, realizing that they need to reconnect and rediscover nature as their source of strength and joy. And I'm very grateful to John Muir and these other authors for helping me discover or that reconnection to to um uh to nature which i had felt throughout my life and by the way when i started the grid um at age you know 50 whatever i realized that the mountains had been calling to me too for my whole life it's just i've been so busy i hadn't ever quite heard them and one day i did so I'm appreciative to John Muir for helping us modernized people rediscover that connection.
1: I love that. That, that is an awesome image of, you know, nature calling to each of us and with everything we've got going on in our lives, our very busy lives, yep. uh, in our jobs and everything else, it takes a while sometimes to hear that call. That's, that's beautiful. Dan, are you, are you familiar at all with the Sierra club and its origins and its activities? A little bit, a little yeah, bit. I I think you'd be fascinated by, by the Sierra club. It really uh, stemmed from a group of uh, professors and students uh, from, from Berkeley who again realized that, you know, they're spending too much time in civilized society and nature was calling and they put together this organization to get people out. And that was really the focus of uh, the Sierra club was to get people out into nature and, um, What was his name? Colby. Colby. There's a Colby Meadow off of the John Muir Trail. The man who that's named after was, was one of the uh, early guys in the Sierra Club, and he would organize these things called the high trips. Have you heard of the high trips before?
2: Oh, these were supported by, you know, huge uh, uh, numbers of donkeys and carrying
1: lots of supplies and provisions. And yeah, that's that's right. They get they get average, ordinary people out into the middle of nowhere Mm -hmm. and and basically have like college classes on various aspects of, you know, what people were experiencing, what they were looking at, uh, the history of the place. Uh, they'd be out there for three weeks, a month at a time. And they, these were called the high trips. They organize a high trip every year to get, get more and more people out into wilderness and onto that path of of discovering and listening uh, to when nature calls.
2: Yeah, I'm a big believer that, you know, more of that would be helpful in today's world. You know, I, I, um, I think all of these folks understood it's, it's not about returning to a true paleolithic diet and lifestyle, right? It's about a balance, right? Because we also need to be productive. And and as you know, John Muir, after spending much of his youth um, out in the wilderness, he settled down and he married and had a family and tended uh, the family orchard. Um, But but John Burroughs, I think, has a saying, and he was a friend of, uh, of, of Muir's. He said, I go to nature to be healed and soothed and to have my senses put in tune again. And I think it's putting those senses in tune. That's what I take away. So when I talk about no interest in luxury, I mean, I've stayed in fancy hotels and I've slept in lean twos and under my six moon design to shoot tarp. Why would I go to a fancy hotel? I'm like, what's the point of that? I don't, you know, I, I mean, there's, fancy hotels are nice if I'm on business, if I'm tired, whatever. Um, but the real joy uh comes from that intensity of the experience out in the wilderness. Um, That's how we evolved. You know, I have a theory that mother nature made our ancestors, at first she made them a little bit smarter, right? And what happened? They were able to better understand the risks that surrounded them and they got terrified and they hid in the caves. And so she said, you know what? I need to give them something else. I need to give them some curiosity, some enthusiasm, some exuberance. And, and that caused them to <laughs> exit from the cave and go out and engage with the environment and discover food and other things and explore. And I think we feel that today when we see these trees changing in the fall or the sunset or that bird or that mushroom or the mountain view. Um, so that's what I call having, I think that's what Burroughs meant by having our senses put in tune. That's real beauty. And, you know, watching... Digital movies and other things is great, but I, when I compare them, I don't see—I see the nature as, is for me at least, being much more powerful than the derivative sort of experiences that
1: people settle for. Now, Ken, in your hotel room tonight, are you going to sleep on the floor?
2: No, I mean, <laughs> um, no. <laughs> um. No. So, so I, I'm, you know, I'm trying to be productive, I've got a full day of meetings today, tomorrow, one more, and then I'll get back to the country and have a little bit of simple, I don't sleep on the floor in my house. So maybe you've, maybe <laughs> I've just added a few points to my score. <laughs> I had you down. Although the t- I do sleep on the floor of link twos and it's no big deal.
1: Right. Right. Now tell us a little bit about your, your trip on the John Muir trail. What were some of some of the highlights, some of your favorite moments uh, from the trail?
2: Well, and I've done it three years. It took three tries before I could do the entire thing barefoot. Um, so I'll give you a low point. So the first time I came out, I made it barefoot. and I made it up and over Italy pass, which was difficult, um, but it was the descent. Um, what's it called? Sanger Creek uh, leading down to the Muir Trail Ranch. Yes, that's the worst for barefoot because it's steep. It's down. Down is harder in bare feet, at least for for me because um, you have to lower yourself you can't no jumping or hopping onto rocks right so it's steep um, it's rocky um and it's exposed so when you happen to show up there at you know 10 o'clock 11 o'clock in the morning it gets very hot so I made it a little way down there and I was like I'm done so I had to put on the shoes um, which is good because the rest of the hike south was even more difficult when you get into the 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 king canyon area and those very steep passes um the next year I made it through there and then had the same problem going down Glen Pass. I call it the toilet bowl that um that little lake right which you when you get down from there, I just fell apart. I missed my time hack. um but I, you know the most amazing part of the the three year experience when I finally finished the the uh, trail, I made it down to Lone Pine and I did put my shoes I was not going to make it down. From Whitney, I was done with the trail, so I put my shoes on. I would not make it down <laughs> the hundred switchbacks without shoes. So I made it down there, and I got a room in the Dow Villa, and uh, I had trouble sleeping because my feet hurt so much. And uh, but the next morning, when I got up and I had some breakfast in Owen Valley, and the sun was just coming over the uh, the, the, the mountains, the Indian Mountains, I realized um, it was so quiet and. That was the quietest, stillest day of my life. So that was sort of what I achieved with that experience. The intensity and the relief when it was done was, uh, was you know, life, it worked, in a sense, life-changing because I never quite felt like that before. But I, I have appreciated the height, too, because I thought about ancestors. I thought about indigenous people. And, you know, I imagine if you saw somebody, a true indigenous person who had gone about barefoot since they were a kid, they would fly over those rocks that I was limping over. But I have a feeling that they had to go hunt. They had to go trade. They had to cover long distances. And I'll I'll bet their feet at the end of a long day hurt just like mine. But they didn't give up. Right. All of our ancestors, they didn't give up because if they had given up, we wouldn't be here. Right. So, um I felt some affinity for the people of the past and what they had to, to deal with. But otherwise, the John Muir tail, Trail is just spectacular. I love the flowers. I saw bears. Um, I, I didn't spend a lot of time in the cold lakes, but I dipped in a few times and those were a special in a little bit of a painful way. <laughs> and the mountains are just gorgeous, you know, so.
1: Yeah. One hundred percent can confirm it is it is a spectacular region yeah. in our country and and should not be missed. Uh, if you have the chance to get out into the Sierras, get out into the Sierras. They are they are wonderful. Hey Ken, you want to talk a little bit about Run Wild?
2: Sure. Um, a group of friends and I created not, a not for profit in uh, New York State, and each of us uh, as runners, we I, I organized a race called the SRT, it's the Schwangun Ridge Trail Run. And uh, a friend, Charlie Gaddle, had uh, has organized a couple of really iconic, difficult ultra marathons in the Catskills. And a couple of other uh, us came together. We formed a board. We formed this, um, this not-for-profit. So we organize about five or six races. And, um, but we have a mission. The mission is to take the, the money from the races and some other fundraising and give it back to land conservation and stewardship in the Hudson Valley. So we're a little pipsqueak group, but so far we've raised about $85,000 and given it to various, you know, conservation-related causes. And that's more than any of us was going to be able to write a check for. So we're pleased with that and we want to do more. Um, And we've got some projects we're working on. Um, So, you know, we hope to grow and do more. And just, I, I believe passionately that if we could preserve more land, that would be a good thing. By the way, the biologist Edward O. Wilson had called for preserving fifty percent of the world's land surface area, and I, in the U.S., I forget where we are—maybe seventeen or twenty percent or something. So, every additional acre that we can preserve, and it could be the mountains, it could be the grasslands, it could be swamp, forest, whatever. I just think that's that's great for people to appreciate, but for the animals, for the plants, just to preserve that nature.
1: That's fantastic. Congratulations on that. Incredible. Now, what is the next big adventure for Ken?
2: Well, uh, you know, um, that's a good question. That's a good question. And I've got stuff I'm doing at work, which is a different kind of adventure, but I'm, I'm nine into, I want to do a barefoot marathon in each of the 50 States. That's just something I'll do over time. I'm not sure that's an adventure, um, but I can't get enough running as long as I'm able to, right? So I'm nine into that. I want to go out and finish up the New Hampshire high peaks. So I've done 36 out of 48. If I can get back to Vermont, Maine, I will have done the 115, uh, 4000 footers in in the Northeast, uh, all barefoot. So that's that's sort of just getting out there and doing it. And, you know, I got to I think there's another adventure out there. You know, I think there's other things I might want to do, but um, that's what I'm working on right now. All right. And my my thought is, you know, got to be doing something.
1: I always I always have to have something on the horizon, something to look forward to.
2: Yep, Doc, you've probably got some projects, I would guess, uh, underway.
1: Yeah, you know, I got I got some projects with the podcast. We've got uh-huh. uh, a, a hike coming up in Desolation Wilderness later this summer, and also a, a week long stay in Wyoming that I'm really looking forward to. Oh, beautiful! Well. Yeah, oh, beautiful.
2: Good yeah. for you.
1: Thank you. Hey Ken, you know where we are right now?
2: I well, you were going to tell me whether I was going to improve on my score of 31 on a scale of zero to 100. That's not a very good score if you're <laughs> if you're looking
1: for sanity right no in fact i think you slipped a couple i think you're you know right. i heard this this 50 mile ultra marathon with no food or water I, you're definitely on yeah. the knees now probably low i had, a, I
2: more had more. a stress fracture too so it was um it just was what it was right
1: well i'll tell you where we are
0: hiking hacks
1: that's right we are at that time of the episode where you get to share a hiking hack share some trail wisdom with our listeners to make their next outdoor experience even better. So Ken, what do you have for us?
2: So, um, well, I'm going to go back to nutrition. I was just having a hike with some lovely young people and, and I love them, but snack breaks and then peanut butter and jelly uh, sandwiches for lunch. It's like, you, you shouldn't need any food to be out for a day. Like, right. And, and you know, you see on the trails, maybe a little corner of a wrapper that somebody missed, um, I, you know, again, look around you at, you know, metabolic health and, you know, American, other modern places, and uh, the body should be able to burn fat. You should be able to go comfortably all day without food. I don't know if anybody's going to appreciate that. Probably not. I since my score is is slipping even further at this point, <laughs> Um but that's what I would would leave people with. I see it all the uh, all the time, right? right? If you're hiking up hill and you're too hungry to keep going, that's not that's not the way the human body is supposed to operate.
1: Now, when you're on the John Muir Trail and you're you're you've been out there for you know how many days? What what is, what is your snack? What are you, what are you eating out there on the trail?
2: Well, I ate three meals a day typically because, you know, when you're out for an extended period of time, right, then you don't want to fall into a calorie deficit. By the way, the first time I was out there, I was starting to get hungry towards the end because it's hard to carry all the food. But I had a mix of freeze-dried meals. Um, Each time I went out, I brought more and more beef jerky um, for the protein. I I do think protein is – I feel protein is important. Maybe it's something I've noticed as I've gotten older. Plus, some – 100%
1: 100% dark chocolate, no sugar added, and maybe some dried fruit and some nuts. All right. I just I just learned what to pack for the Desolation Wilderness. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. All right. So there you have it. We are just about done here. Hope our listeners enjoyed our time with Barefoot Ken. I want to thank him for joining us this week. Ken, how can our listeners keep up with you on social media and where can they find updates on your latest adventures? Or do you not have social media?
2: No, I do um, have social media. I'm I'm most active on Twitter under long brown path, uh, which is, again, goes back to the long path. Or you could search for Barefoot Ken in my website. I have a website, um,
1: www.barefootken.com. So hopefully that's easy to remember. I think I I should be able to remember that. That's that's so well thought out. Thank you, Ken. (laughs) You're welcome, Doc. Thank you. Now, remember to check out the pod on social media as well. We are on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And as I say that, I feel a little bit guilty, like that's a bit excessive. That really flies in the face of minimalism. That's, that's way too big a footprint. So, uh, but there we are. That, 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 that's where we are. And also, if you have comments or clips you want to share, you can send it to me at mirror at gmail.com.
0: Off the beat impact.
1: Now, unfortunately, we can't always be on the trail. And when we're not, we need to find a way to get our adventure fixed. So, Ken, I'm going to ask you to share some outdoor adventure media with our listeners to help them get by. This could be a book, a movie, documentary. We call this segment Off the Beaten Path. What do you have for us?
2: Sure. So I'm going to recommend two books, Doc. And one is your Bible and mine, my first summer in the High Sierra by John Muir. And I just think it's written wonderfully. And as I said, for me, John Muir helped me understand as a modern person how to reconnect with nature. But I would want to say, you know, there are some people who point out that John Muir did not always understand the role of indigenous people going back thousands of years in the landscape. Um, And he said some things on occasion, you know, using words that we wouldn't say today. Um, So I wouldn't say let's whitewash him or anybody else, but let's learn Uh, about him and the pluses and minuses, just like we all have pluses and minuses. And so for the other side, for a different perspective, I would also highly recommend My Life Among the Paiutes by Sarah Winnemucca. And she was the first Native American woman to publish a book in the U.S. And she talks about the challenges that the Paiutes uh, faced with the onslaught of uh, white uh, settlers. And I think there's a great lesson in her, uh, her memoirs because Ultimately, the frustration that the Paiutes experienced with, with the whites was a lack of personal integrity. Sarah Winamaka, by the way, went out and lectured up and down the East Coast about her people and their challenges. She met with the Secretary of Interior. She met with the President. They promised supplies and relief for the Paiutes, and it never arrived. And of course, she lost face with her people. Um, I don't think it's about Different races, you know, different skin color. I think it's about in the modern world, many of us work in large organizations, and um, you know, we're cogs in a big machine. And personal integrity sometimes falls by the wayside. We can all come up with examples of that from today. So, I to me, it's just a reminder: personal integrity matters. And uh, you know, I try to think before I make commitments, before I make promises. I try to be straight with people. I think if each of us does that, we make the world a little bit more transparent, a little bit better, a little bit less chaotic. So I I think it's a tremendous lesson that she's
1: left us on that topic. I I love that approach that you're taking. And I love the balance of, of those two suggestions. Fantastic job. Thank you, Doug.
0: What have we not asked you?
1: And before we wrap things up, just one more segment for you called, what have I not asked you that you're dying to tell us about? What do we miss today?
2: No, we covered, uh, we covered everything. I'm pausing to think for a second, but I think this has been a, a pretty good, um, I think, I think, um, well, let's see. If you give me another few more seconds. No, I'm not
1: coming up with anything. Doc. Okay. That's pretty <laughs> thorough then. Nice. Yeah. I think we're good. good. I think we're hey, good. Ken, are you barefoot right now? Yes, sir. Me too. Me too. Feels good. Good okay for you. Yeah. Well, so are you going to give barefoot hiking a try? You know yeah. if I, If I see a sandy trail, I'm doing it. You've got me convinced. I'm a, I'm gonna experience it fully.
2: Yeah, and don't don't overdo it. Take, you know, a hundred yards or a hundred feet and just see what you think. I, I led a hike the other day in a couple of out of 20 people, two of them took off their shoes because we were going through a grasslands. And they had a great time. It's the body and the mind, the engagement. I'd love to hear what you
1: <laughs> what you experience. Maybe it's not maybe it's not for everybody in today's world when you have options. I'll follow up with you for sure. Okay, great. All right. Hey, we are finished. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Ken. We wish you the very best in your future adventures. And we hope you'll consider coming back on the podcast and sharing some more stories. As we close up today, do you have any shout outs to friends and family, Ken?
2: Well, you know, I I was thinking about Chupacabra and Sherpa and maybe they're listening to the podcast. And so I'd like to reach out to them and say hi and thank you. They saved me a a, a tent site uh, by uh, Arrow Lake Arrowhead Lake. Uh, so uh, if you're around, reach out to me. And I, I wish Sherpa and Chupacabra a great time in the Sierra, because I'm sure they're headed that way as we
1: speak. And you're not you're not talking about Lake Arrowhead up in up in the mountains by Big Bear. You're talking about Arrowhead Lake off of the John Muir Trail.
2: Thank you. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. They, I, they saved me a campsite when I was way behind them, uh, moving at my slow pace.
1: I think that Arrowhead Lake uh, gets gets the short shrift because it is right next to Ray lakes and Ray lakes, you know, people will talk about how that is the most beautiful part of the John Muir trail in some people's opinions, but Arrowhead Lake is pretty darn spectacular. I think I passed by it last year at one in the morning.
2: Cause I had gotten up. I think it's, I may be confused here. I think I got up to dollar Lake and I was like, Oh my God. I was supposed to be much farther along in this point, but this is as far as I'm going today. So that was one of those midnight wake up calls uh, just to try and, and
1: get back on schedule. Yeah. You're in the right area. Yeah. You, if, if you're going southbound, when you got up from dollar Lake in the middle of the night, you would have passed uh yeah. Lake and, and then the Ray lakes. So. Yep. Okay. Well, Hey, thank you for tuning in. Always remember the trail is the trail. It doesn't care if you want to go downhill It doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite. It doesn't even care if it's noon on the way down from Sanger Creek and you're barefoot. The trail is the trail. Embrace the suck.